I'm Peter Rao. And I'm Mike Duran. Welcome to Counterbalance. Today, Mike and I will be speaking with John Sawicki from the Congregation of the Holy Spirit, a Roman Catholic order founded by Francis Lieberman, a French Jewish convert to Catholicism in the early part of the 19th century. The North American Congregation of the Spiritans is known for two educational institutions, the Holy Ghost Preparatory School in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Duquesne University in Pittsburgh. Father John has been teaching at Duquesne for two decades. He chairs the International Relations Department there. And Mike and I will be talking to him about morality and foreign policy. It'll be both lighthearted and pretty heavy on the ethics. Thanks for joining us. All right, Father John, when I was a graduate student at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy, I did what I'm sure many other classmates of mine did, which is to go through the Ginn Library and find John Sawicki's dissertation on the Islamist coup in Trinidad and Tobago, the only uh, Islamist coup in the Western Hemisphere to date. And when I uh, began leafing through it, many worn hands on the pages, as you can imagine, a big bestseller uh, at the Ginn Library. (laughs) In the uh, preface, you reference the Melian Dialogue by Thucydides, this famous passage in the Peloponnesian War in which an Athenian delegation heads to the island of Milos and basically asks the Melians either submit, surrender, or die. As you write, this made you, and I think I almost have this quotation correct, contemplate the tension between moral justice and power in the world. Well, here we are on a podcast. We do nothing but ruminate and contemplate. So I thought I would start by asking you, what is the tension between moral justice and power as you see it in international relations? Effectively, it boils down to really one statement, whether or not might makes right. I, I, think, I think it's important to uh, make a distinction between ethics and morals. Loosely speaking, the ethics, I think, deal with uh, uh, the ideal. The morality deals with the application. Perhaps a, a professional ethicist might want to reverse that, but I I would make uh, that assertion itself. So there is an ideal way to look at the world, uh, and then there is the way that one can apply that. Um, And uh, the rightness of something has never necessarily been able, as a force by itself, to order the world in those terms. Um, So at a certain point, those who have authority have the ability uh, to order the world according to their viewpoints, or at least according to where where they have sympathies, uh, and and so now maybe we can talk about your question in terms of morality, uh, since uh, it creates the opportunity to apply ethics. Uh, it shouldn't be a surpri- surprising to us that nations have their foreign policies propelled by uh, prevailing values, and uh, those ethical values. Uh, rightly uh, and sometimes wrongly order the way the states would like to approach uh, their relations with others. Uh, So whether or not one, for for example, can go into a country like Afghanistan and uh, attempt to apply a Westphalian notion of government and relationship with the rest of the world successfully or unsuccessfully is really on the order of magnitude, either an exercise in fiction or an exercise uh, in enormous 
hubris, right? Since uh, I don't know anybody has ever been successful in doing that. It's noteworthy that uh, after the events of 2001, the exiled king of Afghanistan, his son, uh, the prince, the crown prince, both declined to return to Afghanistan to attempt to set up a government there. It just speaks volumes for the unique political culture of Afghanistan and uh, its tribal nature that uh, they felt that that, um, that ship had sailed for them. But to, to, to speak to it more directly, uh, at, at what point, therefore, does one state have the right to impose its will on others? And uh, I, I suppose the answer to that is never, except if you have enough power, uh, one always slips into the belief that uh, somehow because you have power, you have justice on your hand. The nature of that is that power does not last long and that eventually you're forced to uh, you know, genuflect to the centrifugal forces of reality in the world. Um, in that regards, uh, the uh, great American foreign policy advisor and uh, certainly um, the strong uh, philosopher of U.S. foreign policy, Hans Morgenthau, would have really strong language for the attempt of the United States to impose uh, its ethical position uh, on the rest of the world. When you uh, described a, a great American intellect and foreign policy advisor, I swore your next words were going to be Mike Duran, Father John. So we'll have to edit. <laughs> we'll have to edit that part of the podcast to make sure Mike gets his due. Maybe returning uh, or, or going to the Catholic tradition in particular. There's obviously a, uh, a a strong message coming out of the New Testament to love one's neighbor, to turn the other cheek. Um, and so on and so forth. Even someone just basically literate in modern Christianity can read that, uh, that impulse, that guidance from Jesus uh, in, in the Bible. On the other hand, the world is a nasty uh, and cruel place. How do you reconcile um, and how does, how does the Roman Catholic tradition reconcile uh, the violence of, uh, of, of, of the world with uh, its biblical teachings? Well, there is a vast subject here uh, that you're touching on, and uh, we're we're effectively trying to harness perhaps as much as uh, 3,500 years of biblical tradition. You have two minutes. You have plenty of, plenty of time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who couldn't do that in a minute or two? You can give us a, a little bit, and you do, you give us a little bit of uh, uh, a telescopic lens here by, by restricting it to the New Testament. But um, I, think, I think we have to consider it all uh, in, in toto. But that being said, uh, I think it boils down uh, to uh, these two fundamental value statements. The first one is that peace is the natural order of the human race. The uh, Latin phrase traditionally associated with this and hearkening back to the writings of St. Augustine is uh, tranquillitas ordinis, or the rule of tranquility, which uh, would be a literal translation of that. But that being said, uh, there uh, are oftentimes going to be threats to the rule of tranquility, at which point then one uses the language that the threat understands to address it. And uh, as the threat invariably is, uh, let's say, of a violent nature, then one uh, has the uh, moral right to invoke violence to oppose violence. 
So if, uh, if, we, if we have those two value statements uh, to navigate around, then uh, love your neighbor as yourself, the golden rule, or do unto others as you would have them do unto you, uh, is, is all very fine. But there is a point at which sometimes neighbors do not love us. And there are times one t- when the, the, the tranquility of the state uh, and the protection of innocence requires extraordinary efforts, which may even involve violence. This would be in practical application, Augustine witnessing the barbarians at the gates of Rome? Uh, Not at the gates of Rome, but uh, at the gates of uh, his uh, communities in northern Africa. Even worse, closer to home. Yes, precisely. And uh, although he was not always one to give practical advice, invariably he was driven uh, to a high degree of practicality by uh, the deteriorating uh, politico-military situation in North Africa. Doesn't the idea of render unto Caesar open up a, a space for the state and for politics and for all of the pragmatic calculations that, um, um, that follow from that? Well, if you mean at a certain point, uh, the uh, state's argument for security becomes uh, a smothering blanket that uh, drowns out all other ethical considerations. Yes, that's true. But if you intimate, and I don't think you are, but let me put those words into your mouth, that uh, it is only the state that has the right to speak about security concerns, uh, then then this is this is where the community uh, believers or a faith community has a right to speak about uh, their ethical perspectives. Let, let me give you a concrete example of that. Um, uh, we, we, we could probably use two examples. Um, one, an impossibly difficult one, which we'll save to last, and, and one historical example. Um, l- let's look at the approach to the strategic bombing of Germany uh, in uh, World War II, there was uh, a, a debate that began by uh, Christian leaders in both the United States and Great Britain, which uh, were prosecuting the strategic bombing of Germany, about whether or not this was truly moral. You've, you've got to recall that uh, this was the widespread employment of napalm against uh, uh, heavily populated urban areas, amongst other things. Uh, the uh, famous uh, firebombing of Dresden is, uh, is an epic uh, example of uh, the use of destructive weaponry against a civilian population. Uh, in Great Britain, uh, such uh, arguments were quickly snuffed out. Uh, no less a figure than the Archbishop of Canterbury ruled that this was ethically acceptable. Not so in the United States, uh, where uh, there were uh, numerous voices that were raised. Uh, there was a particularly uh, strong objection from the Catholic community in the U.S. Uh, that um, we can refer to. And in, in that regards, uh, the discussion was on. Uh, in the end, uh, it did not change U.S. policy, and the uh, decision was, uh, in moral terms, the greater good was the defeat of Germany and then later on Japan as compared to the damage that would be done 
and uh, the greater good would be to win the war as quickly as possible, even though it was very, very painful. And so the strategic bombing campaign advanced. Um, you know, that, that would be, an ex- uh, I think, the, the best example of, of where we have uh, a security situation and we actually discuss it. So the state's will for security is not supreme, but uh, has to talk to some stakeholders. Uh, the story of nuclear weapons, on the other hand, and nuclear security is uh, extremely, extremely difficult to discuss and come to any conclusion on, since uh, the idea that we will obliterate the planet on the basis of our uh, disagreement with another state seems to beggar any kind of discussion. And yet we're sort of locked in this kind of steely nuclear logic of escalation and de-escalation, which can sometimes have frightening and even terrifying moments. But nonetheless, uh, you know, the nuclear weapons are a reality. We, uh, we can't walk down from them very easily and trying to manage them within an ethical framework is uh, is almost an exercise in illogic they're so destructive they are truly civilization and species ending and yet uh, we don't have any real good exit from them in terms of policy tools in the world and uh, as a result the subject of nuclear ethics which actually does exist uh, is 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 at best fraught. I, I'm still back on my first question to you about uh, prudence, and that's because I have no training at all in ethics or mo- or morality. <laughs> but I have a I have a really strong gut level inclination in one direction. So I'm looking for you to give me the moral language to justify my my gut level inclination. Uh, and you you got you you started doing that when you said greater good, because uh, if I I, I want to go back to the concept of prudence, you know, say if we're talking about military men, being a you know, a military man is a it's a practical activity, it's one that requires expertise. You and I can't sit from the sidelines and tell um, uh, and tell a guy who is uh, manning a piece of artillery how best to protect himself and so on. So I'm not saying that we might not have you know a, a place here or there to weigh in, but there are so many practical considerations that uh, that go into fielding an army and protecting it that we have to step back a little bit and hand over some of the calculations about what they're going to do and how they're going to do it to their expertise. And similarly, uh, statesmen are going to have to, in order to prevent calamity, um, they're going to have to make some deals with some very unsavory characters. I mean, there's no way that the international system can ever be a, um, a polite club of white-gloved gentlemen. There's going to be a lot of, there's going to be, by, by its very nature, there's going to be a lot of nastiness. And so uh, uh, with those kinds of considerations in mind, I want to elevate prudence on the basis of the, 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 the principle of the greater good as the supreme value in international relations over and above anything else. Um, that's where uh, that's where my gut is taking me. But now I, I need you to explain to me why that's actually a legitimate position in the eyes of the church. <laughs> well, <clears throat> Thanks for such a simple question, uh, Mike, to begin with. But um, 
before I say anything, it's important to note um, that I myself am certainly not an official spokesperson for uh, the Roman Catholic Church, though I am a Roman Catholic priest. Um, We're going to cut not from that sentence. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, let's, uh, let's go back to St. Augustine and uh, try to uh, recapture uh, his moral logic uh, and advice to uh, the soldiers of his day. Uh, his his comment was that uh, to kill another human being is a fundamental wrong and is is never defensible uh, on its own basis. Uh, even uh, to kill another human being in defense of your own life would be wrong, uh, even if, for example, they were a malefactor. Uh, no human life has an intrinsic value over another human life, but. Uh, soldiers, although they did not have the right to kill uh, even an enemy, since we should love our enemies, did have a right to use violence to defend the innocent. And in defending the innocent, uh, who were not able to defend themselves, the soldiers, therefore, had the right to take human life. But they had to do so in a way which uh, did not prove to be either excessive or cruel or uh, profitable for themselves, and and I think that that's that's the beginning of the answer that that maybe you need to hear is that if if we're arguing for prudence, which is itself um, the uh, application of the best morality in uh, a given situation, then the argument here now is the state does have the right to defend itself, which is to say the absence of the state means catastrophe for everyone else who are within it, who are the innocents. Therefore, the state does have the right to defend itself in as much as its interlocutor for uh, those who are innocent within it uh, and its institutions uh, and its industry and its resources and its infrastructure, and its people, and its populations, all of which it has the obligation to uh, protect the welfare therein as a consequence, it can now use force to protect. I think we got there, didn't we? Didn't it? Didn't, didn't, <laughs> I think you have your, your official blessing. I, did. <laughs> I, can, I can feel like a good Catholic and a... Uh, Whatever the whatever the pragmatist. Huh? Well, then I'll continue down the line of uh, of tension because, uh, on the one hand, I think, at least for myself as a, uh, and I don't think this is outing myself to to the audience as anything they didn't already know. As a political conservative, I tend to think that in government, as in ethics, one can't always be situational. Um, yet on the other hand, this this uh, this trade off between this deontological and consequentialist ethic. Does require a deontological de and consequential. Well, that's, that's what you're describing. The just the the, are, the output those, versus that the was too many syllable syllables <laughs> for me to. My my well, mind can't grasp. Well, I'm, well, I'm suffering from ontological <laughs> doubt. <laughs> Help me understand what you just said. This, this tension between uh, uh, decisions weighed by their the, the greater good, the outcomes that arise versus the 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 individual act itself, weighing something by virtue of what one is doing does require some situational uh, judgment, does it not? Uh, yes, uh, it, it, it certainly requires attention to the situation. Um, I, I, I would be hesitant to move too liberally in, into that direction for fear that we could, we'll conflate 
the importance of understanding the context of a situation uh, versus the notion of situational ethics. So, you know, why don't we just uh, rescue that declension for a moment here? In situational ethics, we have the argument that there is no universal ethics and that instead uh, the compelling interests or facts of the moment dictate the reality of what is right and wrong. That, that I don't think that's the direction that you're moving here when you say we have to pay attention to the situation or a situation. Instead, um, it, being able to uh, read the signs of the times and understand uh, the issues which are at play is altogether something different um, than uh, acknowledging that uh, ethics are only situational and that there are no universal truths which can be upheld or for more importantly should be upheld. Uh, Father John, you know, in the last episode we had, Peter used the phrase epistemic community. <laughs> he cut that as well. <laughs> and now, now, now he's talking about deontological something or other. It's uh, The insecurity the, of a think tanker. He's yeah. got to find multisyllabic words <laughs> I, I, to prove his worth. Oh, I thought you were talking about my insecurity. I, so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to still uh, take you back to my prudence concern. <laughs> Because I, I can't let it, I can't let it go. Even though you've almost given me a, a a total blessing here, here's another thought for you. There's a common perception out there that interests and values are separate and kind of uh, categories that are at odds with one another, uh, or or can be you know, strongly at odds. I I I, I think there's a great utility and value in distinguishing between interests and values. But I think if you focus on interests, it is a way in which you can find common ground and a common humanity among people who are otherwise would seem to be very different. What I'm trying to say is I think a, an interest-based approach has if with 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 respect to my 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 concept I'm pushing here that prudence is the is the is the greatest value, an interest-based approach can look at its face in the beginning as very self-interested and amoral, but when it comes up against other cultures and other um, uh, in, in competing states and so on. It can be a great way of sorting out the things that we have in common and the basis for um, cooperative activity that we might not ever get to if we if we lead with our with our values. Um, I feel the same thing about cash, about money. Uh, you know, I'm a refugee from academia, and um, one of the things that I discovered about um, academia and why I hate it as much as I do, and I know hate is not usually a virtue, so. The reason is that there's no money involved. It's all about ego and status, which is a sewer. The minute money is involved, and there's actually, as in business, then all of a sudden there's interest. And once there's interest involved, then you can have common activity. So, for example, Peter and I, we, of course, hate each other, and he can't stand to be in the same room with me. But they pay us so much to do this podcast that we put aside our differences and we put aside all of the re rivalry and ego battles that we have and we make this podcast uh, together and it ends up becoming 
because of the money involved, it ends up becoming um, a much more beautiful thing and even a moral thing than it would be if we were just pursuing our, our own individual stars. Does that make any sense? No. Yeah, I guess it does. Um, but it, I, I still think I have to impose my own uh, logic on, on that stream of consciousness there. Uh, I, I think we can walk away from the notion of money and, um, and, and status and such. Uh, and maybe uh, I, I think I'll just address what I think is the wider question here is whether or not national interest and ethics can coexist. States uh, have interests. Uh, sometimes they're pejorative to the uh, interests or well-being of others. Uh, or uh, states can have values which can be corrosive of, uh, of others or the international system. Like, for example, uh, whether or not, let's say, um, Russia can, uh, can refute the idea that uh, Ukraine has no right to a Westphalian independent identity and uh, therefore doesn't exist as a state. And therefore, Russia uh, can, can claim Ukraine's territory for itself, uh, irrespective of uh, any moral uh, legalities or illegalities uh, from uh, anybody else's perspective. The answer is, uh, in the short form, that uh, it is possible to reconcile national interests with uh, a moral foreign policy without having to play uh, extraordinary games of illogic or worse, just out and out lying, which is, I think, you know, what we what we get from uh, Russia's repudiation of Ukraine's ability to exist as a sovereign state, just to use my own um, uh, uh, straw man example. But uh, it, it, it becomes its own kabuki after a while, doesn't it? When uh, when states uh, are attempting to uh, utilize uh, some sort of self-interest uh, or pursue a self-interest, which uh, necessarily is destructive to other countries and other societies. Uh, like, for example, Ethiopia's uh, recent decision uh, to begin construction of a large dam in the uh, upper regions of the Nile um, naturally had enormous, enormous uh, interests, right, on the part of uh, Sudan and Egypt, who were downstream from that, and uh, necessarily were going to find a substantial amount of uh, their access to the Nile's life-giving water restricted, at least uh, in the short term, and maybe even the medium term. So where we struggle here is uh, when the national interests of, um, of one country impact that of their neighbors or the wider world. And uh, in doing that, you necessarily uh, have collisions of interests and sometimes collisions of morality. But there is no, there is no ipso facto case where or there doesn't have to be an ipso facto case where countries looking out for their own security are automatically doing something which is wrong or immoral. Now, does that answer your question? Uh, so, uh, sort of. I, I, I think I was on a slightly different wavelength because I was arguing in my head, not with you or with Peter, or Peter but with, um, uh, with our colleagues um, here in Washington who define themselves – by this or that 
moral purpose. Mm. And they will depict, uh, um, I mean, I guess I would call myself a foreign policy, policy realist. I, I don't like to use that term because I work on the Middle East and it's already taken by people that I, whom I think are not realists because they, they hate Israel or they are very critical of Israel. But in terms of my orientation, I'm, uh, I think a pragmatic, interest-based uh, approach is the, is the wisest one. And I just find that um, you define interest to be um, one that doesn't take into account the interests of others, like if, if Ethiopia is going to dam the Nile, for example. Uh, but I, I just think an approach that starts the conversation with what's your interest, what's my interest, that opens up all kinds of space um, for agreement among people who may have lots of reasons to quarrel based on all the cultural differences between them or um, historic grievances or what, you, what, what, what have you. But if you come into the room and you say, how can we make money together? Once there's cash on the table, I'm using it as a metaphor, once there's cash on the table, then uh, a lot of those other considerations kind of, um, they don't disappear, but they can recede into the background. I don't have any grounds to disagree with that, uh, except to say, at, at a certain point uh, in time, it, we do find situations where interests do clash and uh, confrontation becomes inevitable. And I mean, fascist Germany and communist uh, USSR uh, understood how to make music between them in 1939 and 1940. But uh, in the end, uh, uh, the, the, the fascists uh, in the West decided uh, to pursue their interests aggressively at the USSR's expense. And if you believe uh, the historiography of some contemporary historians, uh, they make the argument that uh, Stalin was actually preparing to attack the Germans, to attack uh, Hitler and company in the West uh, and he got preempted. But, uh, you know, however you look at that, uh, when, when one understands the world exclusively in terms of interests, uh, interests have a way of colliding. And then at that point, uh, there is no middle ground that's left. Oh, 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 sure. I, uh, I, 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 I think there's more to life than just interests. I, I'm, I guess I'm saying what we should lead with. Father John, as you know, I work a lot on Europe, and uh, one country in particular that I follow probably closest of all is Germany, the economic engine of Europe, one probably should argue. And uh, the Germans uh, have a bad rap for, and I don't think this is unjustified, for coming across as, as, as moralizing at times. And, uh, and part of their moralizing um, is associated with their insistence uh, of, uh, of multilateral blessings for any uh, action abroad, in particular military action. Uh, I suppose one could cynically say this is a way to put process out in front and hide behind, um, hide behind process so as to preserve the status quo. And, and Germany, more than any other country, has had, it, uh, had a great, great uh, several decades since the end of the Cold War, perhaps more than any other country in the world. And so their devotion to the status quo would make sense. But I don't want to go off on Germany. What I, what I do want to ask is, to what extent does, um, does the imprimatur of kind of a multilateral system, a, a UN Security Council resolution, et cetera, 
make something more right and just than uh, than unilateral action? That's the question of the hour, isn't it? When a state looks to do anything internationally uh, to uh, be able to uh, cover yourself with uh, the blanket of uh, multilateral international legal immunity is uh, is always uh, highly attractive. But I would say if um, if if we lead with maybe uh, another Morgenthauan concept here, um, the state has uh, the right to be secure. The overarching value of the state, therefore, must be its security, uh, first and foremost. Then uh, sometimes uh, trying to get that kind of uh, international benediction is all but impossible. In fact, given the kind of uh, almost uh, risible situation that we're seeing uh, the UN uh, sort of stumble into right now with uh, some of the most violent countries in the world uh, in in leadership roles, then you know you got to ask yourself what kind of multilateral uh, or international legal uh, imprimatur are you going to get and uh, and from whom and at what cost? Um, so the state's uh, drive for security may oftentimes force it to select unilateral options. And um, at that point now, we just throw everything up in the air and uh, get back to might makes right because states can always justify uh, their actions on the basis of something, right? The Russians invade Ukraine with very high moral dudgeon uh, about 500 plus days ago, didn't they? Uh, arguing that they needed to protect Russophones and, 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 and on and on. Um, so in, in this case, uh, there's always going to be some kind of uh, moral uh, credit card that can be invoked uh, to justify uh, you know, us uh, punishing somebody else in our interests. But that, I don't think that's the same thing as saying there is no such thing as a moral justification for the use of force or the state's right to invoke morality for its own security. From the supranational to the subnational level, there's a lot of critique, especially from the new right in the US that we have a, an executive run amok uh, and the executive uh, is not sufficiently pulling in Congress and its article two powers to essentially affirm some of these more nettlesome, especially kinetic use of force type of decisions. So the executive basically running military operations with far-flung use of military force authorizations many years ago in the case of the AUMF after, for, the, for the war in Afghanistan. Do you have a thought on that, on, on the tension between the executive and the legislature, in particular in the U.S. system, and any ethical or moral implications of that? Sure. Uh, it strikes me, though, that there really are two issues here. Uh, one is the decades-old yin and the yang of the battle between the executive and the legislative branches over who has the right to uh, deal with uh, national security and foreign policy. Uh, the, the executive is pretty squarely in, um, in control of these things, but Congress uh, has a great deal of authority financially. Not to shade this with more complex subjects, but uh, as we all now live in the hell of Samuelsonian economics, uh, the president uh, can ignore Congress with a fair amount of impunity uh, because uh, Congress's power of the purse has been amazingly muted 
by the ability to deficit spend without any consequences. And uh, the result of that now is a constitutional imbalance that um, I don't see any way out of, given the current realities of American politics. So, so like that's the first the first point. Um, if we want to move now into the notion of policy, well, it becomes um, uh, 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 something that uh, is uh, is is much more difficult to negotiate our way out of. The president is the commander in chief, and the president does have uh, enormous amounts of authority uh, to pursue these perspectives, but uh, not not limitless abilities to do so. And uh, the War Powers Act, which, as I'm sure you both realize, has gone through some some torturous uh, reevaluations, uh, but no court challenge as of yet, is, uh, is, is only the tip of the iceberg about the president's ability to utilize force without consultation of Congress. In fact, perhaps the ultimate uh, use of uh, presidential power in force, the, uh, the, the, the possible uh, uh, advent of Armageddon would probably obviate Congress completely, given uh, the uh, short, short term in which uh, such a decision might have to be made in an Armageddon situation, which, um, I mean, everybody hopefully believes will never, never come to pass. But that, that itself is a complicated subject that we don't have any easy way out of. It is the president's prerogative to send U.S. troops uh, abroad. It is the president's prerogative to order uh, U.S. military power about the world. But it is Congress's uh, prerogative uh, to, to rein it in financially. But there, has, there really has never been a good answer for that. Uh, particularly in the uh, post-Cold War world. The famous uh, uh, early confrontation of this, I think, was when uh, Teddy Roosevelt, to demonstrate American power, decided to send uh, the, uh, the U.S. Navy on a grand tour of the world to show America's industrial uh, and imperial might. And Congress was furious at this, and uh, uh, objected uh, to its cost and uh, to his arrogance, yeah, at which point uh, Roosevelt's famous response was, well, you know, I have enough money to send the Navy halfway around the world and will do so. If Congress wants to pay to bring it back, that's their business. <laughs> but, you know, otherwise, uh, we're, we're, we're always in this kind of uh, confrontation between Congress and the president. But I, I think the president um, always is winners here uh, for a, any number of reasons. I mean, in a linear fashion, as, a, as someone who teaches American defense policy, I could enumerate probably nine or ten reasons why the president almost always wins these confrontations. But, um, the, you know, the, the dominating one right now is that uh, nobody seems to be much chuffed by deficit spending. So Congress's power of the purse is uh, largely nullified. What would you have us read? I really am totally ignorant on this subject. I only have my gut level inclinations. Uh, what author can tell us about, oh, the teachings of the church or sort out this uh, question of value yeah, yeah. versus interest, etc.? If you want a, a dynamic, comprehensive work on it, um, I think George Wagel's writing is just ah, outstanding. Right. 
And anything uh, that he's written uh, in recent years uh, is pretty good. I, I teach two of his books, but the one I like the best is uh, Tranquilitas Ordinis. Uh, and that's actually about 30 years old. But um, that's, that's probably the best uh, discussion of this material in a systemic fashion. He's also a good writer. I, I, I read his, I read his, uh, his biography of uh, Pope John Paul II. It was, uh, it was awesome. I also think that um, if, if you'd like to be uh, more fundamentalist in your approach, a writer named Epstein, and I think there are two P's in his name, um, <laughs> just to just, be different. <laughs> just, I just want to point that out. This one goes back decades. Uh, has written a, or, or or has a comprehensive volume on uh, all of the uh, early documents from uh, Augustine all the way up to uh, the 1920s, where uh, he um, deals with uh, the uh, Catholic Church and the law of war, and and that really is. Uh, uh, that that sort of shows you the dynamic, uh, uh, you know, evolution of this material, and then um, anything uh, that that uh, Father Brian Hare has uh, has written. So uh, I'm pretty sure Brian Hare, why he's got a he's a Brian with a Y, okay, not an I, and uh, H E H I R, H -I -R. yeah. Um, uh, but uh, uh, Father Hare is my former professor, and he has uh, some some pretty excellent writing on the subject. But uh, he is almost certainly the uh, author of the uh, Bishop's Encyclical on Nuclear Weapons, uh, 1982-83. I actually I, took him as well and um, at the Kennedy School. And one thing he did, which stayed with me, which I thought was a nice touch, he passed out his course evaluations during the middle of the semester. And I asked him why he did that. And he said, because if it's not going well, I still have time to make adjustments, which I thought was, was sort of clever because what's the point at the end of the, uh, at the end of the semester when your students can't have any input anymore? Sure. I will say thanks, uh, Father John, for joining us. And uh, it's been great having you on. Wonderful. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to this edition of Counterbalance. We're back in action. Please like and subscribe if you enjoyed today's conversation. And we will see you soon at a podcast near you. Bye-bye. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>